This is Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. Welcome to Fake News and How to Spot It from the Coventry Public Library. Um, I am Lauren Walker, I'm the Assistant Director, and this is Kiki Butler, and she is our Head of Adult Services. And we're going to talk to you about fake news and why it's important and how we got here and how to tell the difference between fake and truthful news. So why is this important to you? Um, well, I think to me it's most important right now because of the election. Um, you know, when we were doing the research for this program, we had seen that study that mentioned that one in five U.S. adults say they get their political news primarily through social media, and also that those who depend on social media for political news have lower political knowledge than most of the other groups. So I think that in order to make sure that voters are informed, it is really important that they can tell the difference between what is real and what is not real so that they can make the best decision for, for what they believe in instead of um, kind of going off of what's kind of being thrown at them on their newsfeed. Yeah, um, I also think it's probably really important. I mean, if you think about it, um, what we believe shapes a lot of how we decide how we're going to live our lives and how we're going to behave and what we're going to do and how we treat even other people. So if you start listening to things that are absolutely just off the wall, you can end up behaving like a completely different person. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things that I think is really crucial is that. Um, technology evolved so fast that I think we haven't really been able to formulate a way to teach information literacy as it pertains to fake news. And so especially young people are actually even more susceptible to it, it seems. And that is only going to get worse if we don't kind of start educating people now about it. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, that kind of rings into the whole uh how did we actually even get to where we are so if we go back way back you know um you know a thousand years the easiest way to disseminate knowledge and that's exactly what you're doing with media is disseminating thoughts ideas and information is it was very much top down um wealthy people if you were a king or something like that or you know a ruler of any given area whatever they called them in your area you could hire people to go out Think of the literal town crier um, and messengers could literally go places and deliver whatever you wanted. And for groups of people that it was very unusual for them to travel, you know, vast distances, many people would be born and died in the same place and never go anywhere else. It was true. If someone came through and told you this happened 200 miles away, you're probably just going to believe it. Right. Um, and I mean, the big one that kind of comes along, you know, originally is, is printing. The ability to write things down and print it out and disseminate the knowledge and information that way. And it does start having a lot of effect, but it's still really easy to lie in a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that kind of gets you through it. And I think it's important to say, like, we've had people lying on the written word for a very long time. Yellow journalism was a thing. Um, it's something you could still 
in theory do. Um, and even when you got to TV, we had in place for quite a while um, in post-World War II America, up until, you know, it started to really go until the 80s, although it took it a little while to really like die, die. We have what's called the Fairness Doctrine. That actually was the rule that you should give fair, balanced, and equal representation. We don't have that anymore. And it's actually, I think, probably next to impossible to enforce on the internet because the site doesn't even have to be in the United States. That's where I think the true confusion starts to really get into because you can end up totally one side, totally the other side. And it's very hard for some people to realize that that's even happened. Yes, definitely. The fairness doctrine, whether you want to say that it was a good thing or a bad thing for the government to tell broadcasters what they can broadcast. Actually, if you want to give a quick summary of what that is for those who don't know. Uh, essentially, um, that was what it did. It, it said you needed to give equal representation. They wanted something to be fair. When you were doing cited things, they wanted equal representation. So equal time. So if you put on a very conservative senator um, who was arguing for a bill, they, you would then want to get yourself maybe a liberal congressman, someone who was in, in Congress on the other side, to show up too. And then you were giving both sides of the story to your audience of why this both sides disagreed on this bill. One might think it was a great idea, the other one probably didn't. <laughs> but it meant that you got both sides of the story at the very least at the same time, usually. Right. And I think that the main thing is to teach people how to how to spot these things for themselves. Yeah, it, it it's a nice concept to say, let's apply something like that to the internet, but it's very hard to do it on a global scale. You know, if a website's somewhere in Eastern Europe or Northern Africa or China, it's kind of hard for the U.S. to control it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does bring up the kind of easiness of, of how it winds up that way. But the question then is, how do we end up with only seeing one side? Right. You know, you touched on it a little bit when you were talking about um, how we got here and talking about the advent of kind of like TV news. And then when the fairness doctrine went away, that's when it became like two totally different news channels that you would watch depending on yeah. what you agreed with. And yes, that's, that's how, it's sort of how you kind of, yeah, so you got things like Rush Limbaugh and um, mm -hmm. the, the big liberal one that everyone knows is Rachel Maddow. Mm -hmm. That's how you got those people. They came out of the end of the fairness doctrine because TV shows like that weren't, weren't really allowed prior to it. Right. And then the news feed whole aspect of it, it just amplifies that, especially with algorithms that, you know, an algorithm on Facebook, for example, is designed to show you things that it thinks you're going to click on. And so it's gonna show you things based on your demographic of what it knows about you, where you live, what kind of a person you are, your gender, your race, your age. And then it's also gonna show you things based on the demographic of the people that you're friends with and what they click on and what you've clicked on before. And it just brings it into not even just partisan politics, but also your own little echo chamber. Yeah, it's your own little bubble. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we should also probably note, it's not just Facebook, like it's all of them. Right. You know, Instagram is going to do the same thing. So is Twitter. They want you to stay on their app. But even more importantly, you're picking who you like. 
when you follow someone and you pick who you follow, how many people go out of their way to go, I really just like this person and I disagree with them almost all of the time on politics, but I'm going to follow them on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In addition to the whole echo chamber of, you know, what you click on and, and what everyone else is clicking on and it just kind of reinforces things, there's also the issue of confirmation bias that comes into play where I've done it before where you click on an article and maybe you see the headline, it grabs you, you read the first couple of sentences and you discover that you agree with it and you just stop reading. Instead of finishing the article and seeing, you know, where is this information actually coming from? Does it actually seem like it's accurate? But if you find something that you disagree with, you're gonna keep going through the whole article until you find that one little fact that makes you say, ah, see, this is wrong. And that is literally what confirmation bias is. It's, it's used to refer to the fact that we're all kind of a little bit more inclined to believe something that already aligns with our worldview. If you very much believe, you know, eating meat is morally decrepit and terrible. If you see an article that says something bad happens to people who eat meat, you are more likely to believe it with literally no evidence being given than if one talks about how some people maybe do not thrive on a vegan diet that has right. actual studies and scientific data backing up what they say. Right. Um, and I think I had a good quote about the concern of specifically with social media and the algorithms that they use. This is from a paper called Exploring Ecosystems, How Algorithms Shape Immersive Media Environments. And the person who wrote it, James N. Cohen, he wrote that personalized feeds are shaped by algorithm-based user feedback. The algorithm systems are embedded programs that analyze past user data and search history in combination with other users' searches and history to calculate digital outcomes, anticipate possible recommendations, and present consumers with feeds that represent their own unique immersive media environments. So basically, it's like, say you were shopping online for sweatshirts and you bought a sweatshirt and now you're moving on with your life. But then maybe you're at work and you go on the internet and you see an ad for sweatshirts. And you're like, how did it know that I want sweatshirts? And that's the tiniest example of how they're gathering our data and using it to, you know, you didn't see the ad for sweatshirts. Your user experience is totally different. I saw the sweatshirts because I was shopping for them. So we all think that everyone is getting the same news that we're getting and we're not. Yes. And it makes it more difficult for users to discern because if they're only aware of their own little bubble, it makes it even harder to look at things objectively. So it's easier for them to target you, but it's harder for you to actually tell the difference between what you want to see and what they're throwing at you. Also, it can also lead you to believe like, everybody's like this. This is the majority of people because you don't see anything. If you don't see anything else, it's really easy to persuade yourself that, yes, this is actually what the majority of people think. And sometimes it's not. But if it's all you've seen, it seems like, well, everybody I know is like that. Right, exactly. So that kind of leads into when you are looking at news that you've come across, what are some quick good signs and bad signs to help tell right off the bat 
should I even keep reading this or is this probably like not yeah. a good source? Um, one of the first things I like to start with is I look for judgment words in headlines. Mm -hmm. I might still read an article, but if there's a lot of judgment words, they probably have an opinion. It might also be, you know, labeled as an opinion piece. And I don't want to say that people shouldn't be able to express their opinions. But when I'm looking at news, if they're calling people subjective terms, it's usually a sign to at least be like wary that these people have made up their mind about one. Right. Um, and I think it's also important that if you are reading an opinion piece, you know, newspapers have opinion pieces, they're in the opinion oh. section. And yeah. It's a little bit harder sometimes when there's no there's no sections on your news feed. So I think if it's not labeled opinion and it seems like it might be opinion, that's a little bit of a red flag. Yeah, it's a little hard to pick that out. I actually liked um, in one of your articles uh, that you had sent me on it, where they actually had they had three nice like, hey, look at these three points because the truth is. Librarians get get up there, and I've, I've taught these classes. We will teach these really long, complicated systems that have like five and six things to do, and nobody's going to do that <laughs> right. uh, when they're just scrolling through Facebook or something else. Um, so I think, and I really liked that. And the first one was motivation. What are they getting out of this? Credibility cues. Who posted this? You know. And yes, you might think Grandma wouldn't lie to me, but did Grandma get lied to? <laughs> is another question to ask yourself. Your grandmother probably wouldn't deliberately do that to you, but if she doesn't know the difference, you should probably stop and look at where she got it. Right. And the third one on that was actually really nice, which was just to stop and think about confirmability. If only one story about something that seems hugely important is on the internet, that's kind of a giant red flag because why would no one else be reporting this story? <laughs> yeah, it's an easy thing to do too. Um, say you you read an article about something and maybe the headline was it elicited emotion in you and you thought this seems like they're trying to get me to feel a certain way. I'm gonna dig a little bit deeper. All you have to do is go over to Google and Google it and you can tend to see the uh, majority of the search results will trend in a certain way. And then there are also more specific fact-checking websites. Like I think Politico is is a pretty common one. And um, uh, yes, one Snopes, that's one that I like. And a lot of people kind of get told they exist and then it's really hard to go and, you know, you just don't think about it, which is why I would say it's more important to remember to just be a little bit more cautious. One of my favorite ones to do is if I go to, if I click on a link and I take it to a website, is I click on their links. Mm -hmm. If they put links in their story that all go back to them and their articles, I consider that kind of a little circumspect because they clearly don't want me leaving their website, especially if they're citing a study or statistics. Right. If you were citing a study or statistics that I can find even not full text access to, I would prefer to get a link to where I can actually get it. Even if it's a journal, obviously, that's going to be behind a paywall. At least I know it's real. Yeah, if you're going through an article and you see a link and you click on it and it does go to a study and, you know, we can also talk about how to know the legitimacy of those studies, but that's a, at least a step in the right direction that it's not on their own website. 
Um, yes. Uh, what? Yeah. One of the one of my my favorite classic ones is if you're around my age, or maybe a little bit younger than me, you remember that there used to be those shredded mini wheat ads that all said that you know if you ate that for breakfast, you were going to be paying much better attention in school. Um, and they actually were told they had to stop doing those. They got sued over it. Yeah. <laughs> because the study was completely shoddy. Yeah, and I um, I was reading an article about that after you mentioned it, and so basically it said that students perform 20% better after eating a breakfast of shredded mini-wheats. And then um, <laughs> on the commercial, that was all it said. And it said, for more information, go to the website. But on the cereal box, very, very tiny at the bottom, it said, compared to no breakfast. and that's not fair. Of course the kid that was hungry wasn't paying attention. <laughs> right. And most of the people who saw those commercials and bought the shredded mini wheats didn't know that it was based on versus no breakfast. And so their thoughts were not only that shredded mini wheats will help their kid do better in school or pay attention better in school, but also that shredded mini wheats was more qualified at that task than other cereals when really it was the same. It, yeah. Um, cereals will help you perform better cognitively versus no food at all. <laughs> no breakfast at all. Yeah. Honestly, I would, I would be willing to, to go on on a limb here and say, I, I have the feeling eating, you know, fruit and yogurt for breakfast will make you be able to pay attention better in class too. <laughs> or only also cookies. Just about anything. Yes. <laughs> Right. So basically, you know, they said studies show, but the phrase studies show isn't actually showing you anything. Yeah. I, I was forced, I'll admit it right here. I was forced to take a statistics class at college, which is probably the only reason I took it. But one thing that I do remember from literally the very first day of class, I think, was the professor saying, you can make numbers say an awful lot of things if you're good with them. Yeah, absolutely. You should always look, because the study for that was paid for by the cereal company. So of course, right. they wanted to make sure they got the outcome that they were paying for. Right. And that happens a lot with food studies in particular. I mean, I'm sure it happens with a lot of industries, but I personally have come across a lot of times where, you know, you'll see something like, for example, those ads that say got milk are sponsored by dairy. So, of course, dairy companies are going to sponsor a study that says that it makes you stronger. And whether or not that study is true, it's just something that you should look further into. Because if the funding for the study is coming from someone who has a vested interest in the study, it's less likely to be reputable and reliable. Yeah, it certainly is, because I, I, I can't think why any company, big or small, would want to pay money to have a scientist do a study that then says that their product is no good. Right, <laughs> exactly. None of them would. It would be very bad business. Right. But I think it gets a little worse than that nowadays. Um, I mean, I think most of what people are truly getting scared about, um, especially given we're only a few weeks away from another election, um, I think probably since 2016, is people have been really worried about what are other people doing it for, for political reasons, and to really manipulate people's opinions. Yes, and 
one of the things that I think is really crucial, especially with this election, is the issue of conspiracy theories or unsubstantiated and false claims being spread like wildfire on social media. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that same study that said that Americans, at least, who tend to get their political news primarily from social media are also less politically knowledgeable. That same study was showing that people who primarily get their news on social media are more likely to see an unsubstantiated claim and also more likely to believe it. So yeah. that's something that I think we should be concerned about because any voter, regardless of you know where you stand politically, when you are casting your vote, it's because you believe in something. It's because this is what you believe in, this is what you want for the country, and for someone to be telling you that something means something that it doesn't is really unfair to each individual voter. Yeah, and it can have some actual really real-world consequences. Um, one of the things that we talked about when we were getting ready for this was I mentioned the Pizzagate. This would happen right. four years ago. A guy showed up at a DC restaurant with a gun, and he did get arrested for it because he thought he was going to liberate some trafficked children from an article he'd seen that the Democratic Party and a bunch of bigwigs in it were using it as a front to traffic children. Right. I mean, did he want children to be trafficked? No. He no. was really concerned about the idea that somebody might traffic children. But I still think he probably got arrested. He might even have seen jail time or something. I mean, he could have I, very easily gotten shot. He was armed and the police showed up. It, w it could have been very dangerous for him. I don't know if he yeah. ended up seeing jail time, but I, I do know he that- He did get arrested. Yes. That, I know he got arrested that day. I don't know what happened to it after that, but- It's mm -hmm. a perfect example of good intentions mixed yeah. poorly with false information because he, you know, if, if there genuinely was child trafficking at that restaurant, he would have been a hero. And that's how he was looking at it. And he was completely wrong because his information was false. Was was totally and wrong. And it was it was a restaurant. He could have hurt someone. Mm -hmm. The police could have shot him. So many bad things could have happened. Right. Thankfully, no one got hurt, which right. was kind of a miracle. But that was one of those things you have to stop and really show that it has re these can have real world consequences for you, right. for your family. Not to you know, I'm sure that impacted his life greatly. <laughs> Many people, um, especially actually in that same study that was talking about how um, informed people are when they're mostly getting their news from social media, it also showed that not only were they more likely to see conspiracy theories and believe them, but also they were less concerned about them than other people. When they were polled, they weren't as worried about it having real world consequences or impacting the election. And so it's a perfect example of how it does have consequences. Yes. Um, the kind of scary thing is, is it's, it's pretty easy already to get someone to believe something that isn't true, just making a page that, that looks rather official, even if it's not. Right. Um, but it can be especially hard to tell the difference between something that's real and that's fake when we get into the world of photo editing and especially deep fakes. People who are very good at Photoshop can convince you that a picture is real. The deep fakes have gotten so good if you have the right software and you have enough footage of someone and pretty much anybody would have enough footage, I think, of, of 
somebody who's very famous, who's, you know, a politician or something like that, because they've done lots and lots of appearances, you can change the words they say. Right. And the good software, it's really hard to tell that someone changed the words they say. (laughs) It can definitely be tricky. I was going through this thing on CNN, which I'll post the link with our other links, but it was, is this video real or fake? And it was talking about deep fakes and then it presented you with two different um, videos and there was no audio, which I think that audio helps you see whether or not it's fake because there are like a lot of intricacies in human voice that can't be replicated by machines. But I got it wrong. The one that was the two videos side by side. And I stared at them. You know, I went through the article and I read the different things that you can use to tell what's different, but they were so similar and I picked the wrong one. So I, I once saw one and they, they, um, they, it wasn't a pick one, but they had, they had done the same sort of thing with George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And they basically taken, they took a video of him talking to the press with an official like White House background and everything. And they, they just changed the words and they were admitting that that's what they were doing. They were showing you, you know, the purpose was showing you what you could do with it Mm -hmm. um, and how it could be dangerous. So there was no one trying to deceive anyone with it, but I was just like, I wouldn't have thought that looked edited at all. Right. And I think that probably brings us back to the whole Googling and using a site just to double check something, which is really, it honestly is sad that, I mean, it's even a problem for journalists before they, before they report on something, because if it's a video, especially now during COVID, when people are doing things virtually, if they get a video of something, they really have to intricately look at it before they can report on that video if it wasn't something live stream that they were a part of. And it's unfortunate that everyday people have to do the same thing. The famous one being that video of uh, Nancy Pelosi where they took a video where she was just talking and then they slowed it down so that it seemed like she was intoxicated while she was talking. Um, But with that one, the fact that they had to slow down the audio was a little bit of a giveaway because you can actually hear the background noise being slowed down as well. And And yeah, it's it's like like the the Photoshop one where you can kind of see the like messed up background where someone was editing it and it was like, oh, they shrunk that part in. Yes. But you can't always count that somebody's going to make that mistake. And not to mention, these are done with AI. These are learning computers. These, the software is only going to get better. Yeah, so that article was saying that the main things that you can do to discern whether or not it's a deep fake, aside from doing the outside work of just taking whatever that is and Googling it, that's usually the fastest way to do it. But if you're watching the video, there are certain things like blinking or the way the head moves or the way the voice says certain words or like the speed of the words as they run together that can give you clues to say like, that's, that's not quite how people do it. <laughs> that's a little, yeah, that's a little off and it could still be even something where you're like, that's a little off from their natural like right. method of speech um, yeah. or something like that. We all, everyone picks out the, uh, the spam email that has more grammatical errors in it than, than it does English grammar sentences. 
but we all, I mean, imagine if those same emails were coming and they had really nice, you know, fonts and they were properly done in American business etiquette and the person sounded like they were a natural English speaker. That's where it gets trickier because, you know, even outside of videos, when you're reading a news article, the misspellings or the strange construction of sentences is a dead giveaway that that is not a reliable source, that it, it could be even a bot that posted it. That's not even an actual person that typed it. Whereas yeah, and when it is presented in a more professional sense, that's when you have to you have to really kind of look into it. And that's when it might be helpful to, you know, look it up or, you know, you were telling me about that one website that seemed reputable on the outside. And once you saw actually where the money was coming from and, and what the organization was affiliated with, you saw, oh, this isn't reputable. But at first glance, it looked like a normal website. And yeah, so that's when, where it gets tricky. When I used to do uh, college level information literacy courses, and, and I, I'm so sad that I, I somehow lost this website, but I, I had one where it was like a, what's wrong with this kind of thing. Everyone thinks that, you know, like if you went to a white supremacist, you know, website, it would look like something out of American History X, if you've ever seen that movie. It doesn't. They have websites that look just as polished and nice sometimes as, as every other news organization out there. And it was one of those ones where I used to show it to a picture of them of it, because if you don't really know what you're looking for, you'd never guess until you had already read some articles. Right. And there was another one that was mentioned in one of the articles that it was a company that specialized in fossil fuels that had sponsored an organization that made a website about climate change. And so when you're getting your sources from somewhere, you have to be able to look at it and say, like we were talking about with the shredded mini weeds, <laughs> where is the money coming from for this source? And, and is that going to determine whether or not it's reliable? Yeah, uh, always follow the money. Because if somebody says, we're a think tank, but the think tank is being funded by this group and this group, they're probably not funding a group that's trying to do even-handed research. Right. So it's something to start thinking about when you get into that and when you start looking at studies. I, I'm a big one if you want to go and, and, and start really trying to, to delve into an article to decide on that. If they're mentioning statistics, I think all news organizations, they should link to the study. But even some reputable places don't do that. Right. People should be wary of a simple chart. If you're not actually seeing where the numbers come from, people are very inclined to yep. just see something that looks official like that, an official visual that says, oh, they did the research. I love yep. them because it is a statistic. But as you were saying, you can make numbers say anything and you can even make up the numbers and yep. make them say whatever you want them to say. So just because it looks official doesn't mean that it is. And it's, you know, if you're going to post it, if you're going to share it on social media, or if you're going to comment on it, take a second and see if it actually is real before spreading it around to everyone else. Because if everyone is believing it at first glance, then it's going to spread like... Yeah, it'll spread like wildfire. And the next thing you know, you'll have millions of people who think that that's the truth. And they won't have looked. Right. But that brings it back to the simple things that people can do. They can mm -hmm. see where the motivation is. They can see what their own bias is going into it. And 
little clues like the misspellings or an emotional headline. Uh, yeah. Those are things that, sure, an actual news article could have an emotional headline and might because they do want you to click on it, but it's something that should have you go into reading that article with skepticism. I, I mean, we should really, we should all behave like every day is April Fool's Day, you know? <laughs> on April Fool's Day, everyone's like, wait a second, is this true? Am I falling for this? And that unfortunately should be how we kind of approach all news especially yeah. on social media. Perhaps one of the, you know, things worth pointing out as well is, is everyone, even a good journalist, can get taken in. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been foreign news outlets which have reported Onion stories. And mm -hmm. if you aren't familiar with The Onion, it's a satirical web, you know, website. But if you don't have English as your first language, if you're not familiar with this website, they've actually had journalists in other countries not realize it. <laughs> Right, exactly. And reported a story from there. <laughs> and that's the thing worth noting. If an organization is willing to go, wait a minute, we're sorry we did this, our bad, this is actually what's the truth, that's actually more important than someone just digging their feet and saying, we're infallible, because none of it is. nobody is. Right. And I think that that's important for each one of us to do as well. I came across one of my memories on Facebook the other day where I had shared something several years ago that wasn't actually true. And oh, no, really? It, I mean, it, was, it wasn't like a, an inflammatory news article or anything, but I think it was, it was like a photo that had been Photoshopped and I thought it was real and I shared it. And as I was going through the memories, no one had called me out on it. So maybe <laughs> everyone else thought it was real as well. But I saw it and I said, I fell for it. Like now I'm a little bit better at discerning it, but anyone can fall for it. Yeah, uh, it can be really hard in that respect. You know, anyone can do it. Is it. I have to admit, I've been kind of up on this for years. I, I could probably get taken in if it was good enough. Right. I tend to have a very healthy skepticism, but even I have started reading what I realized was a biased article and had to stop myself because my own confirmation bias was kicking in and I wasn't willing to listen to what someone was saying because they were saying something I didn't like. Right. And that's important. You know, it's not something to, to beat yourself up about to say, oh, I had a confirmation bias because we all do. So yeah. I think the important thing is to, you know, like you would expect a newspaper to print a redaction if they printed something wrong. And that's a noble way to go about it. And I think that we all need to be a little bit more like that with ourselves to say, oh, I shared this cat photo that isn't actually a cat or whatever it was. I think it was a raccoon standing on its hind legs and it wasn't actually. <laughs> but regardless, it's, I think we all need to be a little bit more forgiving instead of digging in our heels and saying like, well, I said this, so I need to stand by it. I think it's important to say, oh, I do have a confirmation bias, oh, I did share something incorrect, and to set the example for others that we all fall for it, and it's important to just make sure that we're aware of it. I think that's a, that is a brilliant uh, idea, and probably a great note for us to kind of wrap up on. Well, we hope that you all enjoyed this and learned something from it, and maybe we'll share it with others to keep everyone informed and and using that information going forward uh, and stay tuned for more exciting stuff from the Coventry Public Library.
Thank you all for listening. Rhodey Radio is a program of the Office of Library and Information Services and is made possible with support from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities.